Corky here. Our scripture reading is from Revelation 6 and 7 this morning. Chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Chapter 7. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in that reading, we are reflecting on things that are a little bit bizarre. And I actually had us cut it so we weren't just continuing on with some of these things. The imagery and language of the book of Revelation is often really challenging. But I think there are some very simple things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks that can help us to engage this passage and figure out how to apply it in our daily life even now and not just try to read the newspaper and figure out when the next thing is going to happen. So what we looked at today was the seven seals, uh, you know, seal that goes on uh, an old scroll that kept it in place. Um, and the, the book of Revelation has this whole series of things, seven seals, seven bowls, then seven trumpets. And we, we got last week that there's this amazing scroll that nobody could open except for the lamb who was slain. And the scroll is the story of what God is doing in the world, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
and only Christ, the one who is slain, is able to unseal and open it. And so in chapter 6, which Corky was reading for us, we got the seven seals, which as each one is unwrapped, we don't just get the good news of the gospel, we get some horrible stuff that's happening. And then uh, apparently um, the seventh seal, when it's going to be opened, which we didn't read today, it unfolds a whole other set of things, seven bowls, it says. And then eventually in chapter 16, seven trumpets. And it's, with each of these, it's a series of cataclysmic horrors of destruction and death. Some of them are cosmic, like the stars falling from the sky. Others involve death being brought by people or war, pestilence and famine, locusts that sound like they, they come from some, uh, some horror, horror movie. So we have all of these images of destruction and death and suffering. In the view of that I, you know, kind of used to understand, which was looking towards a day when you could be raptured out of here, all of these destructive things were looked upon as a future tribulation period, a future time of intense, horrible suffering and tribulation on the earth, when Satan and his antichrist were running wild and destroying everything. And the question was, who can escape? How could you avoid? And that was the theology of the rapture. And of course, as a young man, even, I had a lot of fear. Like, w would I escape? I don't want to deal with the sorts of things that are being described in here. But the way we've been reading Revelation in line with church history and the way that the majority of the churches have read this throughout the centuries and even today is a different way of approaching these sorts of things. And so as an example, let's look at Revelation uh, 6. And the very famous passage out of here about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you go to Revelation 6, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And the first uh, seven, eight verses, which Corky read for us, talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It, these are sort of famous in, in literature and in songs and all sorts of things like that. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse, each time a seal is opened on the famous scroll that the, that the lamb is holding, every time he opens a seal a different rider comes out on a different colored horse. So the first is a white rider, or a rider on a white horse, and he carries a bow, and he's given authority and power to conquer. And then uh, in verses 3 and 4, we read of a rider on a red horse, and the red horse is coming with war. And then a rider on a black horse is the fourth seal, and he comes uh, with scales in his hand, and it's sim symbolic, very often thought of as famine and poverty. And then lastly, it's the rider on the pale horse in verses 7 and 8. And he's bringing death. Death is coming with the rider on the pale horse. So we wonder, what do we do with these? These four riders, these four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. I think one of the things that we want to do and we want to constantly ask is, how did the first readers understand this? How did the first readers grasp what was going on? And so if you were getting this letter in Ephesus or in Smyrna, in modern-day Turkey, in 96, 97, 98, 80, what would you have thought? Well, here's what I would say. You had already been dealing with a lot of suffering and trial and challenge and horror in life. And on top of that, the Romans were increasingly becoming uh, persecuting 
force against Christians. You were dealing with tribulation. So when you read Revelation, you weren't thinking, what do I need to do to avoid or escape the suffering? Because it's already happening. You might have already lost family members. You'd already dealt with being an outcast in society, with being pushed out of the economic circles, with being under threat of life constantly. So you wouldn't have thought, what do I need to do to avoid or escape this? You would have thought, how can I stand? How will I endure? How will I remain faithful? And I think one of the things that I want us to see, and I'm just going to kind of jump into this here, is that I believe we're supposed to see the time of the tribulations that are described as now. The sufferings, the evil, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are happening even now. And so if you're going to look at those riders again, those four riders of the horsemen of the apocalypse, the the first rider is out to conquer. And it's descriptions of power being wielded, like governments or any in authority. And that's exactly what the people in the first century were dealing with, a government and an authority that came with conquering power and threatened them. The second rider is the red horse of war. And of course, our world is filled with war and has been for thousands and thousands of years. And even if you go down beyond the national level of war, we live in constant enmity and strife and war with one another. Marriages are battles. Friendships break apart because we are at war with one another. Uh, A workplace can be people that are battling each other. We live in in a world of violence and war and enmity and strife and hostility towards one another. The third rider is the black horse of famine. But it's also descriptive, if you read through it, about poverty, about injustice, about a scarcity mindset that we can even have here in the wealthy West of, I've got to keep hold of what's mine. And it's exploiting those who are poor. That's all that's being described by the black horse of injustice and famine. And the last one, the pale horse of death, It's described in words of pestilence and sickness, global pandemic, death in general. All of these things are symbolic of the sorts of brokenness that we have all seen and experienced. And anyone who has looked at history or traveled globally knows that these things are very real. They're very real in the world. They're very real in history. And they're very real in many of our lives. We live in the time between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21. We live in the time that is the overflow and the outflowing of Genesis 3, the brokenness and sinfulness of a broken and sinful and fallen world. And it is a world under God's wrath. So the big idea I think that we should see as we look at these is God's justice and wrath are already being revealed His justice and wrath against sin and evil are already being revealed in the brokenness of this world. But the one who is kind of overseeing all of this, it's not Satan, it's not not the beast, it's not the Antichrist. God is in control of all of history. Remember this, I actually, for some reason, had never seen this until I was reading this more recently, is the one who opens the seals and says, this rider can go out and that rider can go out. The one who can open the seals is the lamb who has been slain. Even the powers of death and brokenness are under the control 
of the one who sits on the throne. And so there's far less to fear if I know that the one who died for me is in control of all of this world. I also want us to see that what we're reading in these verses, in these chapters of Revelation 6 or 8, if you read through some of these, is a direct parallel to what Paul writes about at the beginning of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of of people who suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is revealed. It's already being poured out against the sinfulness of humanity. How is it being poured out? Verse 24 says, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to the uh, over-desires, to the things they want most. Basically, what it's saying is God gives us over to what we want most when what we want most is not him. And that's the wrath of God. We live in a fallen and broken world that carries out the effects of our fallenness and brokenness. And it's God handing us over to say, whatever you want, you may do it. Go. And we live in that time. You know, what's interesting is if you look at what John writes, it's actually no different than what Paul writes, but they do it in different ways. John uses apocalyptic imagery, these grotesque images and these horrible cataclysmic events. And Paul simply says um, a philosophical and legal argument. The wrath of God is being revealed. Here's why it's happening. Here are the things that have happened as a result. It's like Paul is using, uh, he's writing a textbook at times, and John is painting a picture. But both of them are talking about the problem of sin and evil. A holy and righteous God and his response to sin and evil. His justice and wrath and ultimate judgment. The aim of revelation, therefore, is to stir our emotions rather than just get us to buy into some intellectual argument. So what we're getting is almost like if you looked at what Paul writes and what John writes, what John writes in Revelation versus what Paul writes in Romans, John is an artist and Paul is a professor. And it's almost like if both of them were trying to describe um, poverty in parts of America. Maybe they go in and examine all the issues of poverty in America. And John is a musician who writes a song. And Paul um, is a statistician who writes a data-based kind of argument for the problem of poverty in America. Both of them are right, but they're saying it in different ways. One of them gets you intellectually thinking about the arguments and the challenge of poverty. The other one maybe brings you to tears. And that's the idea of revelation. It's to stir our emotions. And one of the emotions that's meant to be pulled out in Revelation 6, in some of these different descriptions of the horrors, is, the, is that, is horror. Horror at sin and its effects on us and in the world. It's almost like this. Think about this. You know, so gossiping is not a good thing, right? But most of us will do something like take gossip, um, And we'll say, well, it's a bad thing, but it's not that bad. But what if you knew that every time you gossiped hail that was covered in blood and on fire was going to fall on you and everyone in your community? So literally, anytime you said any gossiping word, a third of the people you know are going to be killed by hail that's covered in fire. You might not gossip as much, right? (laughs) We don't tend to think about it that way, but John is using dramatic language to get us to see the impact that sin has on, 
us and on the world around us. And ultimately to be revulsed and, and kind of opposed to the, the danger and trial and challenge of our own sinfulness and to realize the gravity and severity of justice and God's ultimate judgment. And this is why we get the right response is actually from not the believers. The right response is from the unbelievers in chapter 6. We read this in chapter 6, the response of all these things being unleashed. We see in verse 15, it says, as a result of the, the horsemen of the apocalypse and all these evil things coming out, it says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They are calling out to be, they're hiding themselves, much like in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve hid themselves, and they want to be crushed, hidden. They just want to hide from the one who is on the throne. And then they say something that is very right on. They say, for the great day, this is verse 17, the great day of their wrath, the one on the throne of the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand before the wrath of God, of a holy and just God? The answer is no one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gospel message, the good news of what's in that scroll is that the lamb stood. The lamb stood and took the wrath and judgment that was deserved for sin on himself, in our place, on the cross. And that's why in Revelation, we don't just hear about God's wrath and justice. We hear about who can stand. Who can stand are those who have a secure faith because of who their faith is in. We see this in chapter 7, verse 14. We read, They, the ones who can stand, are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who can stand before the wrath and holiness of God when we are sinful and broken people ourselves? It's those who admit that they are sinful, that they are in need of somebody to save them, and they put their trust fully in the Lamb who was slain for them. They have a secure faith. John talks about it further when he talks about all those gathered before the throne and who are uh, in in front of God and are worshiping and, and enter into eternity and are a part of the new creation and the resurrection. It is, it's seen, it's interspersed throughout here, but we have it at first here in uh, chapter 7, verse 4, when it talks about the 144,000. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then in verse 9 of chapter 7, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So who can stand? It's interesting here, we get uh, two descriptions, and I'm going to kind of put them together because I think that's the way that we should read these things, is the 144,000 is not an exact specific number so that you can say that there's only 144,000 and it's just people who are uh, ethnically Jewish 
Rather, what's being described here, as we talked about in weeks past, is the number 12, and it's 12 times 12 times a, a thousand, and it's it's basically saying this is a perfect, complete, whole gathering of the chosen people, not necessarily ethnically Jewish people. And in the very next set of verses, it says, it is a countless multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. That means every race, every race, every ethnic group, every people. There are people from every people group ever that are there. How many? Countless numbers. And what's interesting is John hears 144,000, but then sees countless multitude of the nations. This is the same thing that happens uh, last time when we were reading in chapter 5, where John hears about a lion and then looks and sees a lamb. And it's the same thing. It's Christ. And here we're getting that same idea. The 144,000 of Israel, chosen from Israel, are the multitude of the nations. It's the full number of God's people. Revelation talks about it as the church, the servants of God, the faithful, those who have been sealed. They are those who are secure in their faith. And they're secure in their faith because their security depends on God, not on them. The language that's used is the opposite of the mark of the beast, which we talked about. They are sealed on their foreheads with the name of the Lamb and the Father. God imprints his name on them, which was a way of talking about belonging, almost like getting tattooed with God's name on you. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you have an actual tattoo on you, because in Ephesians 1, as we talked about previously, the Holy Spirit is the mark, the seal, that we are heirs of eternity, that we are children of God. And the idea is this. On one level, Revelation is saying, who are you marked by? The lamb or the dragon? Who have you dedicated your life to? In whom are you placing your trust? What are you living for? The lamb or the dragon? If you put your trust in the lamb, the spirit dwells in you and you belong to God. You are his. And your faith is secure because your endurance depends on God, not on you. So who can stand in the midst of the trials and tribulations and suffering of this world, even great persecution? Those who have a secure faith, all the faithful. Secondly, it's those who have a public faith. In Revelation 6, 9, we read that there's a persecution against those who are faithful because they are the ones who had been killed, slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. In chapter 11, there's a description of two witnesses. And some people have looked at this to say, there's going to be two people, prophets resurrected, like Elijah or Moses, that are going to come back to life. But a a more common reading of this in reading it the way that we're trying to read Revelation so that the first century uh, Christians would have understood it is that they are symbolic of all Christians who bear witness to who God is, to the Lamb, to what God has done. They testify to what God has done in Christ, and therefore they bring prophecy, the judgment on sin, to the world, the call to repent. 
and they do so with power, bringing the signs and wonders of God. And so they proclaim the good news of Christ, they proclaim the truth of God's holiness and the problem of sin, and they bear witness in word and deed and mighty action. So in chapter 11, we get that description. They are public witnesses. They're not hiding their faith. But the problem is a public faith is going to lead to opposition. Here's what you're going to find and what's very clear in the book of Revelation is the gospel is always against the powers and philosophy of the world. It doesn't matter who's in charge. The gospel is always counter to every other kingdom and every other worldview. And the result is that if you have a a very real faith and you at all let it be public, you will at times be disliked and maybe even seen as a threat. The kingdom of God, as every nation historically has ever seen, the kingdom of God is inherently revolutionary. It is a threat to the powers. It's why even though the Christians would willingly die, the powers that have been in place always wanted to kill them because the words of Jesus were a threat to the religious leaders, to the political leaders. That's why they crucified him, and that's why they killed his followers. To live in the kingdom of God is to overturn what matters in this world. And it's always going to be a threat and a challenge to the ways and powers of this world. And as most of us have also seen, the gospel is a threat to individuality in the sense of my autonomy, and I can do whatever I want, and I get to define God in my own way. The gospel is a threat to me living my life however I want to. And as a result, the gospel confronts people in a way that is always going to be uncomfortable. It's going to confront me that way, and it's going to confront others that way. And that's why to have a public faith is going to lead to opposition. To follow the Lamb, to follow the Lamb openly, is to invite opposition. To follow the Lamb who was slain openly is to invite opposition. And if you've never experienced that, or to the extent that we don't here in America, in this area, it may be not because we live in peace, because we do not live publicly for the Lamb. Who can stand in the day of trial and tribulation? Those with a secure faith, those with a public faith, and lastly, those with a real faith. A real faith. In chapter 7, verse 14, it talks about those who have endured and gone through the tribulation and suffering. It says, those who have come out of the tribulation. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says that those who have died, been martyred because of persecution, may rest, they may rest before the Lord, rest in the presence of God until the full number of their fellow servants have been killed. And in chapter 13, verse 10, in talking about the Antichrist, it says, there is a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. All of this is saying not that the real faithful people are going to escape, and so you want to try to uh, avoid trouble and challenges and suffering, but rather to be faithful is to suffer, 
and yet to endure. And as we were talking about it, what we've said is the time of tribulation is not some future time, although there may be times of tribulation that are greater than they are right now for you or for us or for the nation or the world. But times of tribulation include things like being persecuted for your faith or famine and war. They are and have been very real tribulation for people in the world now and historically. It may look peaceful here in the West or prosperous here in the West, but that's not the case globally. To be a Christian in some parts of the world will get you killed. Even if you're faithful, it doesn't mean you will escape suffering, sickness, famine, trial, the things that are described, loneliness, addiction, abuse, tragedy, cancer even, are very real things in our world and are descriptors of the tremors and brokenness of this world in which we live. We live in that time of tribulation between the Eden of Genesis 2 and the renewed Eden of Revelation 21. We live in the time after the fall, awaiting the return of Christ. So the question is not, will you be worthy to escape some sort of future tribulation, but rather, is your faith real enough, real enough to endure the trials that will come or maybe are already in your life? There was an article that uh, was sent around from this past week that Tim Keller, pastor, former pastor of Redeemer Prez, wrote in The Atlantic, in which he talked about his diagnosis last summer with pancreatic cancer. What he said was, when he got the diagnosis, and pancreatic cancer is one of the most deadly cancers that's out there, most people don't live beyond a year, he said it was a real challenge to, to see if he could apply the same medicine he had, he had been giving to other people as a pastor for 40 years to himself. It was the question of, is my faith real? Does it work when my life is on the line? And this is what he wrote. Um, his first thing was that he realized that his belief in his mortality did not match um, facing it for real in death. He said this, he said, a belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and strengthening when you're faced with your own mortality for real. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. In other words, he was saying, look, he knew he was going to die someday, but it was always theoretical. And even though he had a firm belief, he had seen people die, he had pastored, he had been at gravesides, when he was faced with his own mortality, he could only deny it. This couldn't be happening to him. How could this happen to him? This can't be right. He still had decades left, right? And what he realized was, he had beliefs in God, in heaven, even his own mortality and the reality of death, but they were more intellectual than they were deep down into his heart emotional. And he needed to put both together. So it's kind of the idea if you could read about honey being sweet and have it described in a book, but to taste it is to experience it. This is what he wrote then after that. What I had to do, he said, was I had to look not only at my professed beliefs, but also at my actual understanding of God. 
Had it been shaped by my culture, had I been slipping unconsciously into the belief that life should go well for me, that I knew better than God does how things should go? The answer was yes, to some degree. I found that to embrace God's greatness, to say thy will be done, was painful at first, and then perhaps counterintuitively, profoundly liberating. What he needed was an intellectual belief in God and an emotional experience of God. And to understand how his cultural kind of blinders had shaped and reshaped his view of God. You know, most of us tend to either be uh, lean towards being intellectual or emotional with our faith, and all of us tend to overlook how much our environment shapes our view of God and our life, how much our culture, uh, the friends that we keep, what we're watching on TV or what we're scrolling through on Twitter, how these things that we do daily do something to us, and they reshape our understanding of God. And so we can listen to one preacher and then another, and maybe we don't all agree, but we don't see it that way because we just kind of have our own view of God. We're not even aware of how we don't have a depth of understanding of God, and we don't have an emotional experience of God to match it. I love theology, and I tend to not be very emotive, but I've also learned that I need to keep deepening, deepening my intellectual theological understanding of who God is and keep pushing against my natural leanings as an individual and as a modern Western American person. I need to keep pushing to have intellectual integrity in my theology and belief in God and make sure it matches the God of the Bible and historic Christian faithfulness. I need that intellectual depth, but I also need to cultivate my love and enjoyment of God, to desire to be with him more and more, to be thankful and worship in the small things. I need the intellectual and the emotional. I need a real faith. Without a real faith that is both head and heart, without a real faith, you'll never have a public or a secure faith. And you and I are likely to crumble under any slight disapproval or any severe diagnosis. Listen, suffering and tribulation, opposition, persecution, death are very real things. I can't know, you can't know, we can't know what challenge is next in our culture or in your life. And even today, many people are suffering the tribulations that are described in Revelation the ones that are the outflow of a Genesis 3 world. We are called to remember out of the book of Revelation, the lamb is on the throne. The lamb is on the throne. The dragon, the powers of this world are not. To the extent that this is real to me, in my head and my heart, to the extent this is real to us, we will stand to the end. Let us pray. God, you are on the throne. We live in a world of suffering and trial. Many people around the world are suffering greatly, and we don't know what tomorrow holds. Enable us to cultivate a real faith, deeply filled with head and mind of 
understanding of who you are and a heart that grasps and loves and experiences your presence so that we can say with a faithful salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb who sits on the throne in whose name we pray. Amen.